standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 179 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I am two weeks into my attempts to get out of bed earlier. Can I just say that noise you'll have heard at the start of this was Mickey literally rubbing her hands together with with excitement. With excitement, I don't know. I think it's tiredness, Anna. (laughs) (laughs) How is it going? All right, as in I've achieved getting up time that I've set for myself for the whole two weeks and one day. I'm enjoying it. I've always wanted to be able to get out of bed earlier and it turns out you just have to do it. Can I ask you what time you're getting up? I am waking up at quarter past seven. Ooh, ouch. It's cheeky. For loads of people who are commuting to the office, they'll be like, that is a lie-in. And I took my hat to you, but for me, that is punchy. Yeah, Christ, I consider it early if I'm up at eight o'clock. That was it. I was like, I want to be doing something by eight o'clock. I want to be having a wash by eight o'clock and I am very slow to come round. So wake up at quarter past seven, cup of coffee at quarter to eight, ready to face things by eight o'clock. The weird thing is, I do love the morning. Mm. Like, absolutely love it. And on the few occasions that I am up because I haven't slept or, you know, because for whatever reason I've got up really early, I always... I'm hit with this. Oh, for God's sake, why don't you do this all the time? The morning is lovely. But I just have no self-control or willpower. I'm just not very good at going to bed. If it makes you feel any better, this is absolutely not happening at the weekends. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I remember taking my good glasses off and putting them down and then thinking, don't leave them there, you'll never find them again. And then... Oh, yeah. I really wish that this was one of these moments where I could say live on the podcast, not that we're live, but you know what I mean, on the podcast, Hannah, they're on your head. Yeah. <laughs> but they are not on your head. And the no, ones on good. your face are not the cool bluey, greeny ones that I ass- yeah. assume you've lost. Yeah, they're also not as good. Um, <laughs> they're not as strong. So, yeah, I had quite a hard time working out how long to put my dinner in the oven yesterday. I could ask you the question that my mum would without doubt ask now. Where was the last place you saw them? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, exactly that. I remember. (laughs) They were on my head. I remember taking them off my head and putting them down and thinking, whatever, don't, don't leave them there. I suppose it's a good excuse to have a really, really good tidy up, isn't it? Later on, our Jen chats to rugby royalty Tamara Taylor about captain in England, coaching the Saracens and her work with the Saracens Sports Foundation. I'll be talking to comedian Kiri Pritchard-McLean about Get Off Live Comedy, which aims to tackle sexual harassment in the comedy industry. Oh, go that woman. And in Rated or Dated, the death of dreams and dignity as we watch 1971's The Last Picture Show. But first, the death of dreams and dignity. (laughs) It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Enjoying the news this week? <laughs> uh. No, us neither. No. So Mick, we quite often cover surveys in BT, surveys that generally find women are being poorly served in one area of their life or by a public service. Uh-huh. Or, or both. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know, call me an optimist or, you know, an idiot. But I was kind of hoping that, armed with damning statistics, women might be able to force some change. Oh, you optimistic idiot, you. (laughs) And so to something that dropped into my inbox this morning from Mumsnet, which has just completed its fifth survey in 10 years as part of its Better Miscarriage Care campaign, which calls for a five-point code of care with supportive staff, 
better access to scanning, safe and appropriate places for treatment, good information and effective treatment and joined up care. And guess what? Go on. Things aren't getting better. Oh. In fact, in some ways, they're actually getting worse. Oh, great. Here are some highlights, and by that I mean very much lowlights <laughs> of the report. Mm. One in five women, 21%, now label their experience as poor or very poor compared to 17% in 2019. More than four in 10 women, 43% waited four days or more. That's from the point of referral for surgical management of miscarriage to the actual procedure. Four days. Oh, that's fucking horrible. It really is. Pain medication also remains inadequate with just 15% of all women surveyed saying that they had received adequate pain relief. One reply said, I was asked to miscarry at home due to a bed shortage and was told it would be like a period. The pain was worse than giving birth, yet I was not prepared for this or offered any pain relief. I think I'm just going to say fucking hell after everything you say, because fucking hell. 61% of respondents said they were either given no or not enough information about what miscarrying at home would be like. And the standard of follow-up care seems to be a cause for concern too, with 68% of women who took part in the survey saying they were not offered any follow-up medical care. Fucking hell. I could go on for a long time in fact but instead I'm going to put a link to the Mumsnet finding in the show notes and leave you with this from Justine Roberts founder and CEO of Mumsnet who said more than 10 years of data shows that miscarriage care in the UK remains patchy and that some aspects such as waiting times appear to be getting worse there's no doubt Covid hasn't helped but much more can be done to ensure that women's experiences are more distressing than they need to be at such a difficult time It's clear that there's overwhelming support for miscarriage leave, which is often granted in an ad hoc way. We'd urge employers to do the right thing and formally introduce miscarriage leave to save women increased angst at an already extremely difficult time. That is all utterly appalling, Hannah. Mm. Would you like some good news for women? Yes, I don't. God knows where you found it, but yes. Tough shit. Nope. (laughs) Just getting your crazy, idiotic, optimist hopes up again. They're the magic beans. I've been sold the magic beans again. <laughs> Look at me with my lovely new cow. <laughs> if there was a slim silver lining for working women during the pandemic, it was that lockdown showed that most people who usually spent their nine to five and then some in an office could work just as effectively and efficiently from home. And even though women in supposedly equal partnerships found themselves lumped with the majority of childcare, home editing and housework, the idea that flexible working might come as standard post-lockdown was at least something. Because for decades, women have been told that one of the reasons that equal pay still isn't a thing, and it really isn't, and why there's still a suboptimal allocation of skills across the economy, because there really is, is because women particularly mums, struggle to wholly take part in work structured in the standard way. Why is that? Well, because that standard way was set up by men for men. Now, to once more reference Susan Faludi's incredible book, Backlash, and to be clear, me keeping on mentioning a book published in 1992 isn't because I am achingly current, Mm. but because Faludi's work is still relevant. There is a history of undermining women's steps forwards by stating those steps are actually, wait for it, really bad for women. 
so yeah, I am barely surprised that, seemingly on the back of Boris Johnson telling the Conservative Party conference that being back in the office with its, quote, face-to-face meetings and water cooler gossip is necessary for a, quote, productive workforce. Women are now being told that, actually, working from home will damage their careers. Because, you know, working in the office was really improving stuff for women, right? Damned if we do, damned if we don't. Anyway, who said that about working from home being detrimental to women's careers? Step forward, Catherine Mann, a Bank of England policymaker who last week expressed alarm that we're facing a, what she calls, she-session. Sorry, please excuse me (laughs) while I vomit into the water cooler I've had installed in my front room. (laughs) I'll be round there for a chat later, Mick. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll mop up before then. With women <laughs> who traditionally ask for more flexible working to facilitate childcare set to suffer as two career tracks emerge. She said, there are people who are on the virtual track and people who are on a physical track. And she says that she's worried that we will pretty much know who's going to be on which track, unfortunately. And while, she added, virtual platforms are way better than they were even five years ago, The extemporaneous, spontaneity, those are hard to replicate in a virtual setting. And Mann said all that, despite data from the Office for National Statistics showing that 60% of staff are now fully back at their normal place of work, and it's just a slightly higher percentage of women still working from home than men. So it seems to me like a lot of women, including Catherine Mann, and no, I can't get over the fact that she's literally called Mann, have absorbed an acceptance of the rules set by men for women to work around and to be on the edge of instead of wanting a reset that means that workplaces and ways of working are fair for all with an equal value placed on women's perspectives and experiences because all that sounds way better than a she session right yeah do you know what it reminds me of lots of women would say you know women who entered the workforce in the 1970s who are now probably in their 70s would say that so much stuff was done in the pub after Mm. work and they couldn't go there because they had kids and this is kind of reinforcing that idea saying well if you're not in the office you're going to miss out on these conversations so you have to be bent to our will rather than hey we'll agree to actually always include you in this conversation you know it's not hard or you and I have spontaneous zoom calls all the freaking time because Joan's done something stupid or, you know, we've seen something horrifying in the news or whatever. Somebody's found a more exciting picture of Jeff Bridges. Oh, hello. (laughs) (laughs) So, do you want a bit of... Well, I mean, I suppose this is good news. Good news, Mick. Are you trying to get your cow back or is this actual good news? (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, it is good news. And that is that Richard Ratcliffe, husband of Nazanin Sagari Ratcliffe, is doing well after ending a 21-day hunger strike and protest outside the Foreign Office. His wife, as we know, was detained in Iran in 2016 on charges of plotting to overthrow the government. I mean, put all of the bunny ears around that statement. She continues to be held there and lost an appeal against a second jail sentence in October Richard, who is now recovering and considering what's next in his ongoing battle to see Nazanin return to the UK, offered a warm thank you to everyone who supported him over the last three weeks, adding, I wouldn't have got through this alone. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where, when it comes to protecting and serving women, our justice system is, well, the same as it ever was. 
In September, Sam Pybus was jailed for four years and eight months after admitting the manslaughter of Sophie Moss at her home in Darlington on February the 7th this year. Sophie Moss died of strangulation and Pybus used what's known as the rough sex defence in court. He had drunk 24 bottles of lager, driven to Sophie Moss's home and then claims he remembered nothing until he woke up in his boxer shorts and found Sophie unconscious. Instead of giving her first aid, he went to his car and thought about what to do for 15 minutes before driving to the police station. On Friday just gone, Pybus's sentence for manslaughter was reviewed at the Court of Appeal because Attorney General Suella Braverman agreed that the sentence may be unduly lenient. But this has been rejected by the court, which decided Pybus's sentence of four years and eight months for strangling a woman to death should not increase. Both We Can't Consent to This and the Centre for Women's Justice have released powerful statements which put the matter way better than I ever could, so to be honest with you, I'm just going to read those out. Fiona McKenzie from We Can't Consent to This stated, The Attorney General was right to try to argue that there was an obviously seriously harmful or fatal outcome to the strangulation. It would be obvious to any reasonable person that she was unconscious and that this would be followed by death. This was a desperately serious and sustained assault of a vulnerable woman by an intimate partner. We were horrified to see the court accept Pybus's claim that Sophie had consented and was a willing participant in what Lady McCurr called a risky sexual practice. Despite this never being tested in court and despite this being strongly refuted by Sophie's former long-term partner and by Sam Pybus's ex-wife. We attempted with the Centre for Women's Justice to intervene in the appeal, providing evidence that strangulation is a core part of domestic and sexual abuse and that claims of consent to strangulation were too easily being accepted by courts in giving lighter sentences and lesser charges. This was rejected by Lady McCurr, who agreed with Pybus's defence team that Sophie's strangulation was consensual and so our evidence did not apply. This could not be a clearer case to show that the law, what it says and how it works, must change. Sophie Moss deserves better and Parliament must return to this. Harriet Wistrich, Director of the Centre for Women's Justice, added, Unfortunately, the Attorney General was bound to accept the case as presented by the prosecutor in the lower court and in particular that Sophie Moss, quote, enjoyed asphyxiation. This is a form of victim blaming, suggesting that she was partly culpable for her own death. The deceased, of course, could not give her own account. Even if she had consented to being strangled on previous occasions, it is pure speculation to suggest she had consented on this occasion. Hi, Hannah here. I'm joined by Kiri Pritchard-McLean. Kiri, it's been ages. It's been a long while, hasn't it? It really has. I know you and I just had a long conversation and we can't possibly repeat that conversation about how <laughs> your last 18 months have been. But, you know, for the benefit of the listener, if you could co- compress it into a sentence, what would you say? Lost my job, moved to Wales, just getting my job back, deeply happy in the countryside. There's some, there's some commas in there. <laughs> Terrific. One of the things you did in lockdown, the COVID arms, can we talk about that? I have to give credit to Jess and Jake, who are brother and sister I went to primary school with around here, who were having this, a virtual pub, like loads of people were, on Zoom called the COVID Arms. And they said, oh, there's quite a lot of us. There's like 20 or 30 of us. And we thought we are going to have a comedy night or some entertainment one night. Would you be up for doing it? And I literally couldn't think of anything worse. <laughs> but I like them both very much. So I was like, okay. And they were like, Rosie Jones has agreed to do it. And I was like, well, if Rosie's in. And I was like, well, that's already quite a good bill. Let me see who else I can get. So Rachel Fairburn did it and, and Stephen Bailey. And then 
they were like, this is a really good bill. Why don't we just try and sell tickets and see if we can raise some money for charity? Because if we sell 100 tickets, that'll be a little chunk towards, you know, Trussell Trust. And I was like, oh, okay. And then like 13,000 people watched the first show. <laughs> and then it was like a real appetite for something that was online and you know it, i guess it very zeitgeisty capturing what the moment was of everyone sort of being locked in together and being like oh it's a bit weird isn't it and so we started doing them we did them every single week of lockdown so i think there was like 14 weeks on the bounce and then we went monthly and we're still it's still knocking around when we do it now we do a hybrid so it's in a venue and then it's streamed out as well because we're very aware that for lots of people shielding the pandemic hasn't ever stopped yeah. um and oh, well the pandemic indeed isn't over and for lots of people that's something i'm very aware of comedy became very accessible overnight and then since things have gone back in inverted commas that accessibility has disappeared and i well i think comedians need to look at themselves and be like don't use those people as a cash cow yeah. and dangle the worm of accessibility and then and then rip it away. So everything I've tried to do since, I've tried to make sure it's accessible and there's a live stream. Even if there's a cost implication to you as the artist, I just think it's the right thing to do. So yeah, COVID arms is sort of floating around and it will come back and we will... There's something that we're planning, but it's... Um, it's massive. So Because <laughs> we would like to do a festival, basically. Wow. Yeah, it, that's quite a big undertaking. The The other thing is, is Jess and Jake, who work on it with me, are both incredibly successful in their own right. Jess is writing a cookery book at the moment and worked for an amazing company. And Jake is out, out making documentaries for Sky. So it's, you know, like those people organising a, f- a festival in their spare time that doesn't exist yeah. is quite tricky. But we'll we'll get there, I think. What did you learn about comedy in that period? Well, because our gig was one of those ones where you couldn't hear the audience. That sounds like torture. (laughs) But do you know what? If you kick into a gear and it's loads like doing radio like that in that you just, you talk straight down the camera like you're talking to a person, just like when you do radio. And they were so, our our lot are so engaged online. You you know, you check your phone in the interval or whatever and your phone would blow up and people were chatting backwards and forwards and we tried to make it interactive. So I learned that I don't need laughter to do my job I learned that some comedians do and there's absolutely no shade in that I learned that comedians need it we need it we need an audience because I thought oh god I'll get some time off you know for the first time since I'm 14 and Mm. I lasted a week and I I was unbearable I really needed the validation because I was such a rewarding job that gives me so much (laughs) self-esteem I was such a nightmare without it it was so unbearable so yeah I learned that and I also learned that it's still just one of the best, if not the best way to bring people together. It is fantastic. And, you know, we have people, I would chat to people on Zoom, so they just sort of pop up and I'd be like, hey, what's your name? Where are you? And they're like, I'm in Canada watching this on a on a summer camp or I'm in Edinburgh and I've just been laid off or oh, I've moved back in with my ex yeah. <laughs> and all this stuff. And comedy was bringing everyone together and it was just a, it was just a really lovely thing. Yeah, it is. Also, comedians are ridiculously generous as well. Like, so how we did it basically is whatever we raised from the show, half immediately went to the Trussell Trust. So we're just under 150 grand donated to them in the time that is run and will be running. That's incredible. Yeah, it's wild, isn't it? And then the other side of it was we donated that other half to out-of-work comedians because they all had thousands of pounds worth because we get booked up six 12 months in advance so even the you know the the quietest comedian has had hundreds of pounds worth of work for because yeah. it's a year's worth so 
they all had that just overnight. It all just went with no signs of when it would come back, no signs of if the government was going to help them. And still some of them turned round and went, give it to the charity. Even though I know the circumstances they're in, I know that they have dependents, you know, I know that they don't know when their next paycheck's coming from. But ultimately, these comedians were asking themselves, do I need it more than someone in a food bank? And the answer was no for lots of them. And I just thought that was... They, there was no obligation and no pressure to donate it, and so many did, and I just thought that was wonderful. Or donated it to the other acts because they knew that so many people were were destitute, and we could be quite a divided bunch at times, you know, <laughs> artistically. Um, but I thought it was a nice time of sort of coming together. Yeah, yeah, that is a lovely story. Now here's another good story, which is Get Off, which is a project that you're involved in, Kerry. Whenever somebody says, and I say this on Standard Issue a project put together by women. Whenever I hear there's a project put together by some people in comedy, one of them is always you. (laughs) (laughs) So I commend you for that. And here you are again. Can you tell people what Get Off is? Yes. So it came about in that every now and then in comedy, it threatens to have a me too moment. And every now and then a perv will be outed, a predator, an abuser. And the conversation will go, it will play out exactly the same way that largely women, I'm going to broad strokes here, but but marginalised people within comedy is probably a bit of a safer bet in terms of numbers. So that's queer people, people of colour and, and, and women go, yeah, this is happening all the time and it's normalised. And then tends to be men go, God, if only we could do something. <laughs> and it never gets solved. And, and I wrote this article I, I yeah I, I was sort of tweeting about it because i'm constantly tweeting about predators in comedy <laughs> if i go on celeb mastermind again that's what i'll say is my specialist <laughs> subject also we all know there's like two big ones still to come out and so it's like a, you know there's a couple of days of reckoning off in the future and then so i was i wrote an article about it for the independent about like we should have an hr that just deals with sexual harassment and then a a, a friend a comedian nina gilligan brilliant got in contact and was like you know, this should be a thing. It, it Like, it could be a thing as well. And I had shared it on my Facebook page and someone I know, a photographer actually, they'd, they'd tagged in someone underneath and said, oh, this is right up your street. And I just texted them. I said, who's that person you tagged in? They were like, oh, um, she runs an independent HR and she's worked with sex workers before, which is sex workers have quite a similar kind of gig economy and industry to comedians. And so we started talking and she was like, yeah, we could absolutely do this. And, and so we were like, okay well let's do it so we just spent like a year thinking about how it would look financially thinking about the legal implications thinking about what kind of you know because you go oh, it's going to be a charity and then actually you go and talk to a load of experts and they go no you're a, you're a kick you're a community initiative something i don't even know what it stands for <laughs> but we're one of those and you need insurance and then we spoke to a big scary barrister who actually had defended people in you know sexual harassment cases and things like that to do with entertainment so they had loads of great information and so it was just hours and hours and hours of meetings but the more we went along the more we realized how vital it was and how it was actually quite doable so that's basically yeah in in our spare time we established an independent HR for sexual harassment in live comedy. It will be means testing. It will be funded by the clubs. But also, I came up to the clubs. I know they've all had a very hard time of it. So we wanted to do some fundraisers first to sort of, you know, get get the finances moving and not go, 
yeah, we know you believe in it, but hand us over this much amount yeah. of money when you've just started making money again. So we're kind of showing willing by having these fundraisers. And yeah, we've got some amazing people on board, some a fantastic lineup. And as much as about raising money, it's about having the conversation as well, about bringing these conversations outside of clandestine whatsapp groups that not everybody is in you know not everybody knows the right person to be in those whisper networks yeah which then makes people vulnerable so that's the idea is i'd love for us not to exist in 10 years i'd love for us to have brought about a cultural change and and it, it just be a, a thing of the past as opposed to quite routine and quite regular at the moment and it's because it's a strange working environment because people forget it's a working environment yeah. people forget that you know because it's not a formal place but then it means that, you know, sometimes the the boundaries are a bit blurred. And, and if all it takes is, you know, hours and hours of training to be like, just because someone talks about sex on stage doesn't mean that they want to have sex with you. Yeah. You know, if, if that's what it is. But like, it's it just needs kind of fixing at every single point. Also, in an environment where people are drinking now, obviously, if you are working, you probably shouldn't be drinking. And a lot of yeah. people don't. But yes, in those sort of environments that, yeah. Like you say, boundaries seem to be a little bit blurred. The location blurs things for people as well. Yeah. Absolutely. No yeah. defence also... of what they are, of doing it. Absolutely. Well, I think that all out like creep predators will operate whenever and however, whatever we put in place. Mm. We just have to make it as hard as we can for them to do it. You know, like not give them the opportunity. And also, if if venues, if channels, if organisations are going to book predators. Like, well, show us your risk assessment to show that you have, you know that this person has a pattern of this behaviour. So what have you put in place to protect the people who have to work with them? And that's comedians, that's bar staff, that's technicians. You know, it affects photographers, agents, producers, promoters. It, it affects everyone in the industry. And we all secretly know who these names are. But it just means that we lose a lot of brilliant people from comedy as well before they've even started going. Because, you know, they might be assaulted or they might just find the atmosphere too toxic and we just don't want to lose any fantastic voices because it's normalized a sort of hostile kind of gross working environment and I want to say that like comedy the reason why we're doing this is because I think it's the best job in the world Mm. and I want it to be safe and wonderful and it isn't as harrowing as I'm making it sound it's not like you know like every gig is just fighting through endless sexual harassment but the fact that it is considered absolutely normal to encounter it fairly frequently is is not good enough. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I did comedy for five, six years, sort of in the early 2000s, and I absolutely loved it. But it, it does it is also an industry that comes combined with things that actually are just intrinsically more dangerous for women, like working at night, like, you know, yeah. late public transport or, you know, unlit mm-hmm. car parks. and Yeah. And I was like a 20... When I started doing it, I was like a 23-year-old from the countryside. And so many times you'd be sort of like, you know, you'd be on at a gig and then a guy you have never met before is like, I'm driving to the gig... Do you want to give me some petrol money and I'll drive us there and back? And you go, okay, because that's the best way for you to get to the gig. Mm. And I'm very lucky that those men are Will Duggan and Pete Otway and people who are my dear friends now. But, the, you know, it's it's situations arise that are unusual yeah. compared to normal workplaces. And absolutely, if you're a gross person, you can use those sort of like that sort of informality to, to exploit people. So you are conducting a survey mm-hmm. in which you are asking people to participate to tell you about their experiences so Mm. you're working with University of Sunderland on this yes so it's anonymous and confidential 
and a, a separate independent statistician will analyze the data because yeah. I know that there's people who are part of sort of several marginalized groups who are quite worried about filling it in in case they could be easily identified. It's mainly so we need to take a snapshot of the industry as it is now before we've started going so we can assess the scale of the problem. It might be far smaller than we anticipate. And in which case we need to work out where the problem areas are and target our resources, our training, everything that we have basically throw it at those areas. It might be far bigger, it might be far more profound and far more dangerous, in which case, you know, if we're finding out that it's routine to have very severe sexual assault at an open mic level, then we need to bring in, you know, much bigger guns to deal with it. So it's important for us to sort of take a view of it. We need to find out if certain groups are more vulnerable to it, it you know, if you are a woman under 30 who's a technician and it's routine from you know from the people in the same field and the same age and same gender to be assaulted then we need to figure out what's going wrong we need to go to venues and go what do you have in place for your technicians yeah. so it's making sure that we're as effective as we can be as well as opposed to just going we think there's loads of sexual harassment and assault out there okay we'll just go at it we want measurable metrics as well so in a year's time we can go around and do the survey and hopefully things will have got better but they might have got better in one area and got worse in the other also as the working environment changes and moves back to how it used to be abuse changed during the pandemic it went online so it became messages it so it wasn't physical anymore mm. but it was m- much more online much more to do with social media so we need to be responsive to as and when things change as the circuit changes as well and this is a really good way to keep on top of it and also for you know for people to feel like they're hurt because so much of this goes on in the shadows without people being able to talk to someone and, and we've worked with some really great charities have given us some fantastic advice like Welsh Women's Aid who deal with women in particular who've obviously obviously women um, who've suffered abuse and we also you know we've taken a lot of advice so we don't wade into this Mm. trigger a load of people into you know an awful state and they go bye-bye that was useful um so yeah we're putting as much stuff in 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 place really to make sure that we're being responsible to the people who use our service as well can you tell me what sort of reaction you've had to this yeah so it's been interesting actually i find it utterly tedious when something comes out and the same sort of lefty men tends to be like God, if there's only something that I could do and like, mm. how is it like this? And if I know anyone, feel free to DM me and I'll have always got your back and be like, why did none of you set this up? Because I'm a busy bitch as it is. <laughs> and I've had to find spare time that I don't have to do to do this. So I don't believe that any of you care if you're not actually putting the hours in like we have. Yeah. <laughs> That's where I am with it. There's also been a bit of resistance from men and women who are worried about it being some kind of witch hunt. And there's been a misunderstanding about what we are. We've had people messaging us being like, this person is is working in this place, so you need to get it stopped. And it's like, well, we can't, that's not our job to stop that. What we can do is, is you know, liaise with the venue or yeah. whatever and go, okay, so what's, you know, what's going on here? We're not the police. So if there's a legal matter, it needs to go to the police. Yeah. But we are... We're, we're in HR, so we are limited, but we're not a witch hunt. We're not looking at cancelling people. Actually, it should be like anything else in that... You should believe in, I believe, rehabilitation. So you should, you know, people should have the opportunity to behave well. Yeah. And it, if they don't, then then that's a different situation. But it's like, at the moment, people can plead ignorance because the lines are so blurred and there's so many grey areas. And, and it's our job to make 
fewer grey areas and it's our job to be much clearer about what's expected from people in their workplace and to support workplaces and to support people the other side as well so it's quite complex I've been surprised actually because the people who've been resistant and the people who haven't been resistant the people I've sort of lazily gone oh they won't be interested because they don't book women have actually been like this sounds brilliant how can we help and then there's people like that I again lazily assumed oh all, all women will be behind it and there's been some women who have been sort of I guess privately, not publicly, sort of suspicious of it. And I think it's our responsibility to go and not on my watch, which is what we're trying to do with with Get Off. Agreed. Kiri, where can people find out more and to fill out the survey? Survey is launched pretty much now. So it'll all be on our website, which is Get Off Comedy. Do you know what? I tried to buy get off as a website and it's it's uh, already been yeah porn. it's already pornography <laughs> which is perfect so um it's get off live all the information is there the survey will go on there it'd be brilliant if you are involved in comedy or if you were involved in comedy as well like your experiences are important as a stand-up hannah it would be useful to see if things have changed have what improved, you're yeah yeah, the, the, I think we need to be take as broad a view as we can for this. Also, the fundraisers are well. There's one tonight, um, so that's Wednesday the seventeenth at the Comedy Store with Russell Howard and Sarah Pascoe and Nish Kumar and Sakisa Bustic Barnes. Amazing lineup. And then we're doing one the following week in Manchester with brilliant uh, Delisa Chaponda, Erica Ella, Rachel Fairburn, Stephen Bailey, and they're all available to stream as well. So if you're like, I want to support this, but I'm not in the country or in the area, then you can. You can stream it online as well. Brilliant. God, I love Delisa Chaponda. We had him on last year and he had his own mic and mm-hmm. he set it to the lowest possible setting and I had him coming through at my laptop at point two and he was still blowing like the, the, <laughs> the, the distorting the line when he came into my podcast <laughs> kit because he is just so ebullient. It's just incredible. Yeah. <laughs> um, can I ask you, Kiri, you, you are touring on your own aren't you? That'll be out soon, actually. I wrote a show called Empathy Pains that I'd been working on for absolutely years because it was about empathy and, the, and it was sort of about online abuse and also it's about non-offending paedophiles. I'd, I'd been sort of researching You cram it all in. You really <laughs> <do>. <laughs> well, this is the thing. I've been working on it for so many years and then the world ended and I was like, I did four dates and that was it. So very brilliantly, the fantastic Harry Widdicombe who runs Aberystwyth Comedy Festival helped me to film it in October and it, I mean, it's going to come out soon. So it's not gone to waste because I was so heartbroken and moving my tour three times. I was like, I never want to do it again. But I had some stuff. If you watch the show, you'll understand how in my personal life that was like I feel compelled to sort of tell this story and put it out there so that'll be coming out soon and then my new show Home Truths has just gone on sale um, which is do you know it's the first time that I've put a show on sale where I don't know the topic and exactly the aim of what I'm going to be talking mm. about like I know I think I know I think I know what it's going to be about and I'm trying to get there but again it's like deeply ambitious what I'm trying to talk about and I'm like is is it going to be good enough and funny enough by the spring and I'm I'm not conf- I'm not selling this well <laughs> I'm not confident it will be Hannah but it's I'm going to come in the way <laughs> yeah please come either way just see what's going on but I'm I'm really excited about it it'll be because it was meant to be, Empathy Pains was meant to be my, my first big grown-up tour and it, it disappeared. And I also managed to do this thing where I convinced myself, because I did a lot online in the pandemic between sort of like Instagram lives and COVID arms and podcasts and things, that I'm like, oh, I conditioned people to 
never want to pay for me. I'm a thing that they have for free. Mm. So the time when I need them, where I would will make my money and work hard, and the whole point of doing telly and stuff like that is so people can come see the show because that's the thing I put all my pour my heart and my brain into. That I'm like. Oh no! They'll think that I'm free. <laughs> so I've been so scared, but it's going okay so far. Yeah, the sales are all right so far. It should be okay. We'll see. And just to prove your point that you made earlier, in that you're, you're too fucking busy, you're also doing a Christmas all killer no filler, I believe. Yeah. Yes, that is going to be wonderful. I started doing Christmas shows a few years ago, and they're just so much fun and just daftness, and it's a really good like hurrah at the end of the year. And we've always wanted to do the Manchester Ritz um, because we've both been to see bands there and it's pretty iconic. And they had a date and we were like, should we just do it? So we booked it, even though it's the biggest one we've ever done. The amazing people listened to it, sold it out. And then we'd, we sell tickets online to stream it as well. And so there's thousands of people coming online as well. So I'm really, really excited about that. I think that's going to be... But yeah, I think that's going to be fantastic. Um, and that's at the end of November. I sold out, I'm afraid. <laughs> but you can get online tickets, um, which will be really fun. I've also had a wild outfit made. And unprecedented for me, I've lost weight. Um, so I'm going to... I used it for a photo shoot and I had to use... My friend's got a bridal shop. These things called clamps, where you like clamp yourself in at the back. It's just a way of grabbing. The, it is like a clamp. Oh, like those grab- things that people put in their hair. Yes, it's yeah. All, yeah, it's like a really hardcore bulldog clip. <laughs> I, can't, I don't know if I've got time to get it sort of taken in in the meantime, which means I'm probably going to have to do the show only ever facing perfectly forwards. <laughs> or I look like a, tri, what is it, Triceratops? No, Stegosaurus, is it? The yeah. one with the plate on its back? How are you going to sit in a chair? I'll perch on the end like a lady that I am, Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> Kiri, thank you. This has been brilliant. Oh, thanks for chatting. Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I'm joined by former England captain and player and coach for Saracens women's team, Tamara Taylor. Hello, Tamara. How are you doing? Hi, Jen. I'm great, thanks. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So I'm very excited to be joined by you today, Tamara, because you've had an incredible career, haven't you? You've got over 100 England caps and you are one of, is it three women to have achieved this? There's a few more now, I think across the globe I think there's nine now in total one of the Italian players was the latest to get her 100th cap which is really amazing for an Italian player because they don't play as many games okay so yeah it's exciting we're growing our band of centurions is growing (laughs) In, in women's football at the moment, obviously, it's it's grown probably a bit quicker than than rugby in terms of the public interest, and and there's quite a lot of money has gone into it. But I was thinking, what you're starting to see now is a lot more international players coming to play here in the women's league, and I wondered if that was something that looks like it would happen anytime soon with rugby, or does it already happen? Yeah, it starts. It has started to happen already. So we've got, especially this last two seasons with COVID, our league carried on and a lot of countries, it was frozen. They didn't have the funding to keep the testing, etc. going. So we've got, God, probably nearly 10 Americans over at the moment coming up for that in Canadians, like five or six Canadians. A couple of Japanese players have just come over. In fact, Worcester 
I think they had a Japanese player kicking. Uh, I just saw something on social media and she's the first Japanese player in our league to have kicked any points, which is like quite a, an exciting, like not groundbreaking, but like we're getting a lot more women coming over and being given the opportunity to play at least semi-professional rugby. There's not a lot of money, but they're, they'll be supported to come over maybe with their accommodation, maybe helped with a job. Yeah. Um, so it's going in that direction. And then we've obviously got Welsh and Scottish and Irish players, which is a little bit easier for them to come across sure. the borders to get to us. But it's the Premier 15s league is definitely turning into something that's not just what it, it started as, which was an England Red Roses pathway. It was somewhere for those players to play. It's now, well, actually, this league is pretty good. So if you want to come over and, and play for a big club and, and maybe get looked after a bit as a, a rugby player, then you should come over. You've joined me today to talk to me about the Saracens Foundation, the new development project that it has just launched called Empower Her, which is set up to inspire female leaders through sports. So tomorrow, I was wondering if you could tell me, first of all, a little bit about the programme and how you came to be involved in it. So it's through Saracens Foundation and it effectively... The point of the project is to help increase the number of females within like leadership, within whether it's in sport or business. That's the kind of the massive thing that we'd like to do is to start helping to increase that number of females who feel like they're empowered to do that. Hence the empower her um, title. So there's 15 females. I think they're between 16 and 25 who've come on the project as mentees, mm-hmm. and then they're going to be mentored by a mixture of rugby players from the Saracens women's team and netballers from the Mavericks. So it's a kind of, it's using the elite athletes who are are playing in their sports to help mentor and support those girls. But also we're then bringing in experts in their fields, people like um, Sue Anstis. We've got Lucy Ray, who's chairperson at Saracens, and a wheelchair tennis player called Lauren Jones. So sort of people from different aspects of life who've um, overcome different barriers probably in terms of that gender equality piece and they're going to be giving talks on different things um, and hopefully giving a bit of inspiration to those girls as well. Definitely should mention the sponsor Shawbrook Bank mainly from my part is because they're the first sponsor that we've had that's across all three elite teams so it's it's not just our oh, here's the boy sponsor and all the girls can have a bit they're sponsoring everybody. They're the partnership is basically across all three elite teams at Saracens and the foundation, which is, uh, if we're talking about gender equality and uh, across the board, that's fantastic that we've got um, the support of them to do that. And also they've helped, from what I know of how the project was set up, they've helped to make it a bit more self-sustaining. So the idea is at the end of the 12 months, everybody, uh, mentors and mentees, will put on a sporting event at the stadium at Saracens. And everyone will be involved in organising that and the money raised at that sporting event will then go into the next year's project. So rather than it just being a sponsor that's like, oh, here's some money, here's some money, they've helped to make the project something that's going to be sustainable and it's got an end point and it's got a legacy, um, which is really important for these kinds of things. It's not just a one-off. The idea is that it can continue with or without. So obviously you've come to be involved because you are, you know, you play for Saracens, you coach at Saracens and it's through the Saracens Foundation. What made you want to be involved in this particular project? And also, why do you think this is still necessary? I know it'd be great if it wasn't necessary, wouldn't it? And it could just be a general project to help leadership. But 
there's still not enough female leaders across across business and sport. I think Women in Sport did a survey not that long ago, and there's less than 10% female coaches in high performance sport generally, not just rugby or netball. And I think it's something like 30% of board members across sporting organisations are female. And that's that's not a good representation of our world. And it's certainly not a good representation of, of the sporting world either. So for me, I've played rugby for a long time and I've always been someone that that didn't want to kind of stand for not being treated fairly. Like fairness and honesty and, and, and equality are pretty high on my values list. So when I saw that this project was coming up and it was going to hopefully help support and we're slowly going to start um, closing that gap, that gender gap. I wanted to be a part of it and hopefully I can help and tell a little bit of my story and stuff that I've had to go through and help inspire the girls. So the point you've just made about the, the lack of female leadership in sport in particular, obviously we know it's it's across the board in business and, and, and everywhere else, basically. Yeah. But uh, in sport particularly, what difference do you think it would make you know, to athletes to have more female leadership? It's a representative voice as a starting point. So, you know, it's not just females. There's a, there's a lot of different diversity and inclusion issues that we have across sport. So it's, it's just changing what we've always seen, which unfortunately has been white, male, generally middle-aged. And that isn't a good cross-section of, of the people who are involved in sport. So we need those voices to be represented. And hopefully by... By starting to change that, it will also inspire other females to realise that there shouldn't be this barrier. You shouldn't be thinking, well, that's not my place. I shouldn't be taking part in this sport because it's for boys or I shouldn't be making decisions on committees because no one on those committees looks like me. So I'm obviously not supposed to be there. I don't know. For me, it just makes sense. Why would you have all of the same people doing the same thing and playing rugby? You've got such massive diversity of skill set, body type. It's just natural that you would have lots of different types of people with lots of different skills. And that works really well in that team environment. So why wouldn't we have that in our leadership roles or in our businesses or our committees? You've got diversity of thought. You've been playing for quite a long time now. You must have seen a lot of progress in that time. The development of the of the Premier 15s league, for example, sort of semi-professional and professional contracts within the sport for women. Like, what does the pathway look like for women now? Is it easier to get involved? Do you think that has really changed a lot? It's definitely more visible. When I started playing when I was 15 and I only knew that rugby was a thing because my brother played, and then I didn't really know whether girls were supposed to play or not. I just did whatever my brother did because I was an annoying little sister. <laughs> and women's team started at his club at Henley, where I grew up. And I saw, literally saw a poster and I was like, oh, there's a women's team. Cool. I'll just join that. And I was, I was too young. You had, at the time, you had to be 16. There wasn't any adverts to tell me that there was girls clubs that I could join. And to be honest, I don't think there really were any girls clubs that I could join. So... I trained alongside a women's team and and when I was old enough, I was able to play. And that was sort of the story. If you, if you look at the England girls who played in those kind of the early part of my career, a lot of them only started at university because that was the place where you could go. There was lots of different sports on offer and you could have a go at rugby. And then these women found that it was an amazing sport and they were really good at it. And that was the transfer into then playing for your national team. And, and that's massively changed. If you take a cross-section of the girls who are playing for England now, a lot of them have played junior rugby. There's still, there's still talent transfer and, and older 
players that have come from other sports, but there's a lot more junior rugby and it's a lot more normal for girls to be playing that. And I think that's the start of a pathway for me is that it's normal to be playing something, any sport, whatever it is, at a junior age group, boys and girls, shouldn't matter. And then if you want to progress, you can then get on that, you know, that performance pathway or the, the playing for club pathway um, if you don't want to play or don't have aspirations to play for England. And those pathways certainly weren't as clear as they are now. So I'm massively self-frustrated because I think everything should be moving a lot faster because I've been around for a long time. And, and you get frustrated, I think, when, um, when you know that there's positive changes that can be made and it's, it's just ticking along a little bit. But if I stop and think about what it was like when I started, it's, it's loads better now. So you've done what we say in football, I, d- I guess maybe it's the same expression in rugby, your coaching badges. You've, you're <laughs> yeah. a level four coach, is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's the top level, so that's a performance coach. So you have coached men's and women's teams. Mm-hmm. I wondered, what's the difference? Is there any difference in coaching men and women? I actually did my, it's like a mini dissertation, a long-term assignment for my level four on this. Oh, interesting. Um, because I was kind of getting fed up with everyone telling me that women, it was very different coaching women. And yet it was always, always seemed to be ex-male players that came in to coach mm. women's teams. Like, well, if you're saying it's so different, why are you always bringing somebody in yeah. who's never been in that environment themselves? And my argument really is that it shouldn't be different. Yes, society has created different differences in terms of our culture or what we think is normal. Mm. And maybe women do ask more questions, which is which is something I always heard. Well, women will always question you. They'll always ask why. And I think, well, if you were starting quite a new sport and you weren't really sure like what was happening because you'd never played it, you'd probably ask questions. You took a male and said, right, we're going to play netball or lacrosse today. And they didn't know what was happening. They would probably ask, oh, why are we doing that? OK, what's the process? But you don't have that with the boys because they've generally played at school and they played at club and, and they know what rugby looks like. So they just put their head down and they do what you say because that's how they've always been coached. Whereas the girls haven't been coached the sport in the same way. So my argument is that it, it is different in that sense but I don't think it's because we should be treating men and women differently because they're so different Mm. I just think the way we've grown up is the bit that kind of makes those nuances are there more leadership pathways opening up for women in sport and in in men's sport as well um yes and no (laughs) sometimes I think it's happening and then stuff changes so there's Rachel Taylor skills coach uh, in Wales she was coaching in the men's and the women's game which was a massive breakthrough for Welsh rugby and for rugby in general um, she's now not in that role anymore Giselle Mather she was coaching at London Irish in their junior academy setup she's now moved back to the women's game as has Rachel Taylor so I, I think there are or there have been opportunities but they're they're probably still a little bit limited we can I work for England Rugby and Coach Development and we do help support female coaches because we need to increase those numbers and a lot of it is around confidence and, and do you want to take that step into coaching? Do you believe that you're you're good enough? And a lot of females, unfortunately, are still low on that confidence level. So we do quite a lot of work to help mentor and support. 
but you can have as many coaching badges as you like. You know, I'm an example of that. I'm, I'm a level four coach, but it doesn't mean that you're going to get deployed in those areas. And it's some of that is the men's game opening their eyes a little bit more and looking outside of their box and saying, well, actually, maybe I will interview that person or maybe I'll get them to come in and, and do some shadowing, some experience so that I can have a look at them and they might be a coach of the future for us or they might be a manager of the future for us. I, I do think the opportunities are there. I think it requires people to, yeah, to want to do something different to how they've always done it, which I personally think could be a massive bonus for them. Obviously, you've, you know, you, you've got your coaching badges, you're, you're up there, you're still playing at the moment. What's next for you? Where do you want to go to next? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know. I kind of, I've sort of fallen into the stuff that I've done in terms of, I started coaching because it it worked with trying to play for England. I could fit the, the time of both and I'd done some teaching and I love sport and I love helping people. So it seemed to kind of fit and work quite well. And then I progressed through my coaching badges. I coached more. I went into mentoring and coach development, um, which is where I am now. So I've kind of done a bit of coaching, done a bit of supporting, and now I'm, I'm trying to help develop other coaches. And I don't know, yeah... I don't know what will be next. I'd love someone to give me some inspiration. Maybe I need to go on some of these um, these courses. I want to make a difference, which is why I came on to help support in this project as well. I want it to be normal for women to be playing whatever sport they want, to be doing the same as, as men are doing, because I just, I just don't see that there should be any difference. And one person's going to be great at something and the other person won't be great at it, but it shouldn't be their gender that defines that. Absolutely. I mean, you're you're in the right place to to be talking about that, Tamara. We definitely agree with you. So, Tamara, is there anywhere we can follow you on social media if we want to keep up to date with with whatever it is you do next? Yeah, I'm on Tamara Taylor 5555 uh, on Instagram and Timmy Tammy 8 on Twitter. Tamara, thank you so much for chatting to me. Thanks for having me, Jen. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Mickey, which film that found it okay to show us full frontal nudity, but not to show us snogging, did we watch this week? <laughs> this week, we watched Peter Bogdanovich's 1971 Ode to Bleak, The Last Picture Show. Adapted from Larry McMurtry's semi-autobiographical novel of the same name, it's a small-town coming-of-age story set in the early 1950s. And despite being made in the 1970s, an era of colour so vibrant it veers on the garish is shot in black and white, which adds to the moody, melancholic vibe almost as much as the pretty much constant background soundtrack of Hank Williams. It also boasts an absolute chef's kiss cast – Timothy Bottoms as Sonny and Jeff Bridges as Dwayne, two high school best pals trying their best to exist in the one-horse town of Anarene, Texas, where opportunities are as scarce as a pretty girl's, of which Sonny believes there's just the one, JC, played by Sybil Shepherd, and, you know, sad for Sonny, already dating Dwayne. JC's mum Lois, Ellen Burstyn, is desperate for JC to avoid the trap she and most of Anarene's women fell into, which is marry their first boyfriend and find themselves stuck. See also Cloris Leachman's Ruth, married to Coach Popper, who does his best with the football team and keeps his true sexual orientation firmly in the closet. 
Ruth is lonely and sick until she and Sonny start an affair. And it's a move of desperation, but one of the most touching relationships in the film. Because what do you do in a town where there's nothing to do? The young'uns play pool, watch movies, eat burgers and chase sexual adventure, trying to work out how to escape Anarine or what to do if they can't. Their parents stay home, watch telly and, you know, sometimes chase sexual adventure. Yeah. Seriously, the sexual tension in this film is almost as high as the number of tumbleweeds. <laughs> the last picture show is slow and deliberately so. Though not a classic Western, it certainly has a Western flavour and indeed some incredible Western stock. I'm sure Hannah was wondering why I'd not mentioned him in my name call earlier on, but namely Ben Johnson, a world champion rodeo cowboy turned movie star regular in John Ford Pictures alongside John Wayne, who here stars as Sam the Lion. Can I ask you if you remember the last time that Ben Johnson was on this podcast? Oh no, when were we talking about Ben Johnson? He is the guy that dies when the bees all come Oh, is he in the swarm? He's the guy, the train, and like they all fall out of the window. Amazing. Oh, scrap the rest of this. Let's just go and watch the swarm again. Well, here he is, Sam the Lion, and not on any trains. Sam's ownership of the pool hall, diner and the movie theatre makes him head honcho of Anarine. He's also taken it upon himself to look after Billy, an intellectually disabled kid, much loved by Sam and Sonny, but treated like shit by most of the town. Put more simply, Sam the Lion is the glue holding Anarine together. Fun fact, Bogdanovich asked Johnson three times to be in the film before Johnson agreed, his worry being... Too many words, Pete. Too many words. Mm -hmm. And in fairness, his speech about lost days of summer loving with a married woman is one of the best scenes of the film. And, I'd wager, a lot of films. Considered by many to be Bogdanovich's masterpiece, critics fucking loved The Last Picture Show and it has the coveted 100% critics rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It was a critical and commercial success, grossing $29 million on a $1.3 million budget and was nominated for eight, count them, Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Director, which it lost out on both counts to William Friedkin's The French Connection. But it did bag Best Supporting Actor and Best Supporting Actress for Johnson and Leachman, respectively. Back to Rotten Tomatoes for a moment, though, because it does, however, only score 90% on its audience rating. Now, I was intrigued by this, and having read a few of those audience ratings, the main quibble appears to be from more recent viewers who found the slow pacing tried their patience. So, yeah, happy to watch 12 hours of Squid Game, but lacking the attention span for a film that's not even two hours long. Yeah. Hannah... I am willing to bet that if Bogdanovich had filmed four hours of this, you'd have gladly watched them. Yeah, I, yeah, I love it. I mean, it's a neo-Western, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And coming-of-age film. But it's also a real kitchen sink drama at the same time. All of these dissatisfied middle-aged women. Mm. You could have seen Mike Just, Lee, you know, watching yeah. it and going, hang on, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think it's glorious. When did you first watch it and how many times have you seen it? Um, I probably first watched it when I was about, I'd say maybe about 20, because my dad, massive Larry McMurtry fan, so my dad was one of those people that used to force books on you. So, yeah, I read The Last Picture Show and Lonesome Dove when I was about, I don't know, about 18 or 19, and then I saw The Last Picture Show probably when I was at university. Yeah, it's really good. I've probably seen it, like, maybe two or three times. So I haven't read the book, so can I ask you? Obviously, Larry McMurtry co-wrote the screen, uh, the mm. the script 
with Bogdanovich, but does it differ from the book at all? Do you know what? I can't remember because I only read the book once and it was ages ago and I've seen the film way more. So, yeah, I can't remember, to be honest. But, yeah, he is a good writer, Barry McMurtry. He continued to write about Dwayne and the Mm. characters or some of the characters in The Last Picture Show. And so there's a sequel to this, I was just which about I've never to say seen. To you, yeah. Oh, that was my question. I was going to ask if you'd seen Texasville, which was 1990, and stars Jeff Bridges and Sybil Shepherd. So, you know, spoiler alert that maybe they do get back together. Have you not seen it? No. I don't like things that come with sequels ages after, and I just never watch them. I never watched the new train spotting when it came out. We did Gregory's Girl, and I, I just never watched Gregory's Girl too. I think when there's been a really long gap and it's been allowed to sit with you, you've come to your own conclusion of what. Mm. Like I would never read the Testaments either. I just I've come to my own conclusion of what happens with that story, and I'm done with it. Fair enough. Although Aunt Lydia's story is very good in the Testaments, it's a bit like at school when we read of Mice and Men. The absolute balls of the teacher to get us to write an extra chapter, like John Steinbeck yeah. hadn't finished his story properly. What this needs is some fifteen-year-olds. Yeah. I wanted to ask you whether you thought that the Last Picture Show was still relevant today, because I think a lot of people forget, or certainly a lot of commentators sort of forget, that small-town America is still most of America. Agreed. And also having, I mean, I didn't grow up in a town as small as Anarene. How many tumbleweeds a year in Newport Parkville? <laughs> Not that many, no. <laughs> but there is that sense that everybody knows your business. Mm. And it is brilliantly done when it becomes increasingly clear to Sonny that actually this secret affair that he thought was a secret, everybody <laughs> yeah. knows about. Yeah, totally. <laughs> because that's small towns. People notice people's cars parked outside people's houses and things like that. And yeah, nothing is a secret. Whatever time you grew up, the claustrophobia of small towns is evergreen. It made me think about another film that we had watched really recently for Rated or Dated, and that was Harlan County, USA, because that is almost like what has happened before we get to Anarene. You know, the decline of industry, the not being anything to do, that people are relying so much on a particular industry to be the heart and soul of their town and keep them going. And when, spoiler alert, but it's from 1971, so, you know, keep up people. When Sam the Lion does die, it means that the town's heart is just gone. There's absolutely nothing to do anymore and there's no reason to be there. What there is to do is what Jeff Bridges does. What join Dwayne the army, does, which is join the army. Yeah, mm. and I think that's is still pretty evergreen as well. Or attempt to become very, very, very good at sport. Yeah, I don't deliberately seek stuff out that's set in Texas, and yet almost everything that I that is set in Texas, I love. Like there's something about that Dallas, sort of... yeah, big big day <laughs> <Alpine>. Yeah, <laughs> no, but like Friday Night Lights is Texas, King of the Hill is Texas, uh-huh. most neo westerns are Texas. There's something about that that sort of, it still feels frontier a little bit because it is so remote. Mm-hmm. And because a lot of it is, you know, why why do towns exist, towns in remote places in America? It's because generally it was service the, the railroad or something like that, you know, or just for the sake of going going west and being able to claim some land somewhere and have something to call your own. It isn't a country like ours where, you know, they tended to be like communities grew up around certain things like rivers. Mm. And I find that perpetually fascinating. America is such an interesting social experiment 
always. How do you think it's going? <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's a whole different conversation, obviously. <laughs> obviously. But like much as I really, really, really love Jeff Bridges, I actually think it's bottom. So it's like the real star here. I think it's brilliant. Oh, agree. Genuinely yeah, totally brilliant. Agree. Yeah. He gets a little bit more to do, in fairness to Bridges. I think yeah. Sonny's character goes through the most changes because he is determined to try to make something work in Anarine. Yeah. And I think he is actually the nicer of the two. I mean, the worst thing he does in this, really, I mean, outside from what they do to Billy, which is incredibly misguided and doesn't stand up at all in modern, which is, you know, trying to like, send him to the local prostitute, which, of course, you know, that's a whole different conversation. But I think basically the worst thing he does is like, He's horrible to Ruth. And one of the most enjoyable moments in this is when she gets to tear into him at the end yes. of it. Why am I apologising to you, you little bastard? <laughs> <laughs> she is, Cloris Leachman is just glorious in yeah. that scene. And apparently she did it in one take, no rehearsals, just absolutely nailed it first time. Also, I guess people might think that the fact that he goes after JC up well, JC goes after him after she and Dwayne have split up and he she's she's sort of turned on by the fact that he's had this secret affair with an older mm. woman and she's like, hang on, maybe Sonny's an option. And she does go after him and obviously Dwayne's really annoyed and he does do the whole, oh, I don't think you'd mind, even though he knows his best mate is madly in love with this woman still, this girl still. Yeah. It's probably not brilliant best mate behaviour. JC's incredible because I think I think JC's a timeless character because she is just a girl who loves the drama. She totally. loves the drama. My favourite bit was when they're coming back from uh, getting married and they get stopped and he was like, how would they possibly know? And she goes, well, I did leave a note. <laughs> <laughs> she is just craving attention. She yeah. is bored out of her tiny mind. She is trying really hard not to do what her mum said and that is to like... Okay, so once her mum gives her that warning of don't like literally just just fuck Dwayne, see if you like it before you marry him, because otherwise you're stuck. She says it much more poetically than that, but that's the gist. And she just wants some excitement and there is nothing in town that gives her any excitement. So she makes her own and she's very manipulative, but she's also 17, 18. Mm. I wanted to talk about the women, obviously, because we're standard issue. But I think the women are incredible in this. Yeah. So actually, JC's mum, Lois, I really loved her character. I read that Bogdanovich said to Ellen Bernstein she could play any of them. And she yep. picked Lois. But yeah, I also think, oh God, now I'm so terrible with names. The woman, the waitress, the one Eileen who Eileen Brennan, who I fucking love. Uh, yeah, from Genevieve. Private Benjamin. Yes. That's also a brilliant role, even though it's it could be really insubstantial. She's just the woman who works in the diner. But I also think she's terrific. She's cracking. And then, obviously, Cloris Leachman is incredible as Ruth. And what a role to get as well. I mm. think, yeah, it's really good. She gets she gets a little bit of an Anne Bancroft moment, doesn't she? She gets to see herself through a young boy's eyes as some, someone who hasn't been written off in the way that she's been written off by her husband for reasons she has absolutely no control over. Yeah. And a little bit of an extra lease of life. Yeah. It's worth mentioning Bogdanovich did originally have a scene in which that was made a lot more clear, but apparently they ran out of money and just didn't film it. I think it's in the director's cut as well, isn't it? Or in, certainly in the director's notes that he yeah. is quite implicit that Coach Popper was gay and hiding it. Yeah. 
So, Hannah, you you have done reading around this, and it's one of your you know you were well chuffed with this choice. You were a big big fan of the film, but did you know that it was banned in Phoenix, Arizona, when they were screening it in 1973? Was it for the huge amount of tits and bush in it? It was for the skinny dipping scene, correct? Which is interesting, isn't it? Because basically, the federal court went, "No, nah, it's it's not obscene. Don't be daft," and they were allowed to show it. But that scene is interesting because it is explicit. But it's it's quite shy and coy, and I think it's quite sweetly done, given that it is a quite young woman, or very young woman, she was 20 when she filmed it, stripping whilst being watched. Yeah, they're not all in that scene when it got filmed. No. Which is interesting, because Sybil Shepherd seems to have had a relatively good experience of filming that scene. There was only two other people in the room, like, when they when she did it, but... You know, which isn't bad for 1971, no. really, as it goes. But I find it really interesting that the other stuff, the kissing, the weird thing, is still done in that really sort of like like 1950s film way in which everyone's just like, mm, mm, you know, just, just <laughs> pursed lips together, just moving ahead from side to side. Goldfish kissing. Yeah. <laughs> Simpsons kissing, that's what that mm. is. Extended, extended mush. Yeah, I mean, I guess also it's quite interesting that Bogdanovich did start a relationship with Sybil Shepherd. I'm guessing he was one of the people in the room when that uh, scene yeah. was filmed. He's not exactly been prolific, though, has he, Peter Bogdanovich? He's not done... Well, I get shit from Hannah for saying this. I don't think he's done very many good films, given that he, he made a great film. Paper Moon, that's a good one. Yeah, I'm really struggling to think of... He, I'm sure there was one where, like... Was Pete Bogdanovich one where Eddie Izzard was Charlie Chaplin? The Cat's Meow. That's what that's called, The Cat's Meow. I did used to love Mask with Cher when I was younger. Yeah, me not so much. <laughs> no, it didn't strike me as a and film what's that up, like. It's him as well. But what I mean is, if you were going to ask me, like, pick a Pete Bogdanovich film to save from, like, whatever, I would pick this really easily. And with a lot of directors, I'd be like, oh, oh I don't know. I don't know which one. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Uh, I remember getting very excited, though, when he appeared in The Sopranos as Dr. Melfi's psychiatrist. So I was yeah. like, oh, it's Peter Bogdanovich. Uh, a series of boyfriends. It makes me sound much more prolific than I've actually been. But who I rewatched The Sopranos with, none of them knew who the fuck he was. And so my fun fact was just ignored, really. Tut. Tut, indeed. So before I ask the big question, is there anything else that you would like to say about the last picture show no other than that people should just watch it <laughs> okay so in that case i mean i wouldn't say that of every film that we've done here by any stretch of the imagination but yeah i mean it's two hours long it's perfectly entertaining it looks pretty yeah get your tissues it's funny it's quite sad make you cry it didn't make me cry no i don't cry at meaningful stuff and i only cry at stuff like fucking love actually where they've manipulated the shit out of me and i'm also really angry <laughs> John Lewis advert. Yeah, John Lewis The fucking McDonald's advert with the reimaginary reindeer, that made me cry. But something that actually has heart and meaning? No, absolutely not. Dries a stone. Great. So, rated or dated? Yeah, I mean, absolutely rated. It's a cracking bit of cinema, isn't it? Rated. Yeah. It's you again next week, mate. It is. We're just playing rated or dated tennis. There's two Peter Weir films I could have chosen from. The absolutely amazing Picnic at Hanging Rock is having an anniversary, but I did actually do that when we were a magazine. Mm -hmm. So maybe I'll revisit that at another time or maybe I'll do it on 
on flicking at some point. So I thought I'd go for the other Peter Weirfield that's having an anniversary, which is the Mosquito Coast, 1986. Harrison Ford, Helen Mirren, River Phoenix. Lovely stuff. Have I seen it? I feel like I have seen it, but I can't remember it, so I'm excited to watch it again. It's based on the Paul Thoreau book. Keep your powder dry. Don't need all the facts right now. Save some for next week. Standard issue for all women.